Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. U.S. politics have become increasingly partisan in recent years, and one area where this partisanship has been pronounced is in discussions over the country's energy future. On today's podcast, I'll be talking with a recent and outspoken member of one of the country's most important energy regulators, who has raised concern about the influence of partisanship in regulating the energy industry. Cheryl LaFleur was, until this August, a commissioner with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the government agency that regulates the nation's electricity and natural gas markets. During LaFleur's decade at the FERC, the emergence of shale gas and concern over climate change greatly changed the energy landscape and the context in which Americans talk about energy. On today's podcast, Cheryl will talk about these changes and about concerns that politics could test the FERC's mandate to be an impartial arbiter of the nation's energy markets. We'll also look at how growing climate concerns may complicate the regulator's job of overseeing energy markets. Cheryl LaFleur was a commissioner with the FERC from 2010 to August 2019 and served as chairman of the commission during both the Obama and Trump presidencies. She is in Philadelphia today, October 24th, to receive the Carnot Prize for Distinguished Contributions to Energy Policy from the Climate Center for Energy Policy. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. And congratulations on receiving the Carnot Prize. Thank you. I'm really excited. So you were at the FERC during a decade that saw major transformations in the energy industry, particularly the emergence of shale gas and climate concerns. How have these developments created new challenges for the commission? Well, as you observe, the past decade has seen a transformation really nationally and even internationally in the way we generate, deliver, and use energy. And it's really been shaped by three forces, um, broadly speaking, all of which are drivers of change at FERC as well. The first is resource changes, particularly the tremendous growth in the availability and affordability of domestic natural gas including right here in Pennsylvania, which is making gas um, the fuel on the margin, the fuel of choice for a lot of new generation, and also change to gas import business overseen by FERC to a gas export business. The second is the growth of new technologies, particularly carbon-free, clean energy technologies like wind, solar, and storage. Wind and solar in particular have seen tremendous decreases in price over the last decade, have reached more than critical mass, and are they have different geography, operating characteristics, and price characteristics, uh, cost characteristics than fossil resources, and that's impacting a lot of the work FERC does. And thirdly, a growing understanding of the environmental and especially climate impact of energy, um, which is not something always under FERC's direct control, but decisions around climate shape what FERC does. I just observed that because of the way the government and energy regulations structured, all of the decisions about new resources, new technologies, and how we meet climate issues are being made in a very disaggregated way. There's no overarching federal policy to hook into. There's stuff that's regulated by FERC, other things regulated in the 50 state houses, some decisions being made locally or even at the corporate level, and that's made things a lot harder as we try to make this transformation. Now, the FERC is fundamentally an economic regulator. Uh, Tell us about that mandate. 
primarily FERC is an economic regulator. Um, it's a creature of statute with authority over on the electric side under the Federal Power Act, uh, wholesale rates and interstate transmission of electricity, primarily economic regulation, um, also gas and oil pipeline rates, and reliability and cyber standards, in which case it's a reliability regulator. And in those areas, uh, environmental issues shape the facts and law and the record, but FERC is not specifically an environmental regulator. On the project side, though, FERC is in part an environmental regulator. Uh, with respect to gas pipelines, liquefied natural gas facilities, and hydroelectric um, power stations, FERC is the lead agency under the National Environmental Policy Act, so it actually has to conduct the environmental review in addition to any rate work it does. So the issues of energy use and climate change are very closely related. Uh, taking this a step further, how should FERC, in your view, factor climate issues into its decision-making? Other than in the project work, which I just mentioned, as to which FERC is the lead environmental regulator, um, on the electric and the gas rate side of the business, climate is a driver of a lot of the things that FERC is seeing in its dockets, but it's not something FERC is deciding itself. So um, climate decisions are shaping a lot of new technologies coming in, and those technologies are changing interconnection rules, transmission planning rules, um, changing market pricing, and how you have to dispatch the power. But it's not like FERC is saying, hey, we want to have X percent carbon improvement, and therefore we'll make these changes. But a lot of other people, the states, um, federal tax policy and other drivers are shaping a response to climate that's changing what FERC does. On the gas side, on which FERC is the um, lead NEPA agency for pipelines, FERC actually has to conduct the environmental impact review and decide that the impacts are on balance in the public interest, you know, that the pipeline is needed. And there, uh, there's been a direct discussion at FERC of how climate issues should be considered in that environmental and public interest review. So the FERC has been grappling with the closely related challenge of state subsidies for renewable energy and nuclear power. Can you talk about the jurisdictional tug of war between the states and the FERC over this issue? Well, of course, as I said, there's a disaggregation of decision-making between FERC, which oversees the wholesale market rules, and the states, which oversee the building of generation and the distribution rules. Um, Two-thirds of the population in the United States is um, in an area that's served by a wholesale electric market, but it's really the three eastern markets, PJM, New York ISO and ISO New England that have um, a structure of having deregulated generation in many states, uh, gone to a merchant model and use the wholesale markets to, for resource adequacy to make sure there's enough resources to keep the lights on. In those regions, um, the states have in the past few years um, started to make substantive choices that are different than the choices that the market, which runs an algorithm to keep the lights on at least cost uh, while meeting all the laws, um, that states have made choices either to retain resources that are not thriving in the market, particularly some of the nuclear units, or that are perceived to not be thriving in the market at least, 
or to procure resources, particularly offshore wind or Canadian hydro, whether it was selected in the market before the contract was signed or not, and have that paid for by distribution customers. Um, Two of the circuit courts, the Second Circuit and the Seventh Circuit, have made clear that states have the right to set a carbon goal and pay zero emission credits, and that is not preempted by FERC. Where FERC comes in is in overseeing the market rules of how the market rules have to adapt to those choices and those initiatives. That is FERC jurisdictional. Now, now getting to that that issue a little bit further about the, the markets adapting to those state subsidies, the largest of the electricity markets, PJM Interconnection, has not been able to move forward with its annual auction for electric generation capacity because the FERC has yet to rule on whether PJM's proposal to deal with those subsidies can be implemented. And you've called FERC's inaction on this issue, and this is a quote, an act of regulatory malpractice. Can you explain? Yes. This issue first started perking seriously in around 2017. And at that time, FERC asked the three market operators that had the issue most acutely, PJM, New York ISO, and ISO New England, FERC encouraged them to go come up with regional solutions, which has been happening to varying extents. In PJM came into FERC in 2018 and said, we were unable to agree with our stakeholder body, which is a large and diverse group, on a specific proposal. So we have two different ideas for ways we could go. Could you, FERC, please give us some guidance about whether either of these is on the right track, and then we'll go back to our stakeholders and push on that one. And as I said in my dissent on the in the order in, I believe, June 2018, I would have done that. I would have said the MOPR-X proposal, which is kind of a compromise, a minimum offer pricing rule, that seems to be working toward a compromise with the states. Why don't you work on that one? And I would have, and I still would encourage PGM to engage in a very serious discourse with the states whose customers it serves as to their intent to rely on the market for resource adequacy long-term. Are they going to pay for everything themselves or just a few selected resources? That has implications for PJM. What FERC did in June 2018 was say, both of the ideas you came forward with are bad. Um, And in fact, this was the critical point, your capacity market is not just and reasonable. FERC initiated a complaint under Section 206 of the Federal Power Act. Your capacity market isn't just and reasonable. And then FERC put forth a somewhat thinly sketched idea for a hybrid market. Hey, try this, giving PGM a rather long list of homework uh, assignments of how that market would work. So they gave a a general construct and said, PGM, figure it out. Well, they said, um, please think of which resources would qualify, whether you would price adjust, how you would do the timing, et cetera. I believe there were eight, if I remember, questions PGM was asked. And that was in June 2018. Since that time, PGM did file something back, but FERC has not ruled on the next phase of what PGM is supposed to do. So the time to run PGM's capacity market in 2019 has come and gone twice, but um, because FERC said the capacity market wasn't just reasonable, PGM can't run it. Most recently, in an order I voted on, um, FERC said, and wrote a strong concurrence, FERC said, don't run the market in August. Await something from us, please. We'll get you something. The problem is that uh, there's a lot of... uh, investment that has to happen in resources to keep the lights on. And right now there's a great deal of uncertainty as to what the market rules are going to be. And um, 
there's probably many drivers of it, but the fact that it's gone on so long is very, very unfortunate. We've put PGM in a difficult position. And I just wanted to make clear what the real issue here with the state subsidies is, is if you have a subsidized resource, a renewable generator, a nuclear power plant, that potentially has the power or the effect of lowering the price paid for capacity to all resources in that market. And that's that's the major issue. Well, the way I would frame it is, so um, a market operator is doing a, an uh, conducting an auction saying, this is how many megawatts we need three years from now. Um, if we don't have enough, somebody has to come in and build something. And so it's supposed to be that people put in their bids um, of how much money they need to either run something they have or or build it, and those bids will generate how much money somebody who's going to build something new gets. And if a group of the resources are operating in another whole structure where they're already getting paid to the side, By the perhaps states. correctly, but they're getting paid for something, I mean, correctly under state law, because if they're, uh, then you have a, an unequal playing field among the resources in the market, and that's the, the core nut. In ISO New England, uh, the proposal they came up with was to have a set run a second capacity market for resources, state sponsored resources that are coming in in the future and kind of replace, have a replacement auction in a sense, um, the competitive auction for sponsored policy resources, the CASPER, to um, replace some of the other resources that weren't sponsored. Not suggesting necessarily that that's exactly what PGM has to do, but PGM didn't come up with a structure and FERC has not yet for PGM. You know, the stalemate over the PJM market may, at least in part, or at least in appearances, reflect a broader challenge that you've commented on extensively, which is what you see as a a partisan divide on key issues before the commission. In fact, you stated that sustaining bipartisanship at the FERC is key to keeping the agency alive. What developments have you worried and why? FERC is by design a bipartisan agency. No more than three commissioners can be from one party, from the president's party. And historically, over many decades and during um, significant issues that came up, the California energy crisis, the um, Order 888 and the redesign of transmission, FERC has very, very often um, come up with a compromise or consensus vote of all of the commissioners and voted unanimously on a bipartisan basis as they do uh, make new policy. And I think that was true for the most part in the first several years that I was there. We had dissents. Sometimes the dissents were uh, bipartisan. There was the most prominent problem when I was chairman the first time was the commission's inability to agree on the eighth Ford capacity auction in New England, and it was a two-to-two stalemate um, with one Republican and one Democrat on each side. What's happened the last couple years is we have seen in significant policy cases, not everything, um, far more voting along partisan lines with um, the Republicans, when there were three of them voting one way and the Democrats voting another way and an inability to coalesce in the middle. And I think that's unfortunate because, first of all, if you're dealing, grappling with new important issues and 
it's a three to two or three to one or whatever partisan vote, then uh, as soon as the White House changes and the FERC changes, it could flop back the other way, similar to net neutrality in the FCC, where it's changed a couple times as the FCC has changed. And that is not durable policy. People are making investments, whether they're in the offshore wind or new gas plants or transmission lines. People are making serious investments into these markets to serve the population of the United States. I think that uh, climate change, which we talked about a little bit earlier, has been a wedge issue. The issue of how, if at all, FERC should consider climate in its pipeline and LNG reviews and how FERC should help the market operators adapt to state climate initiatives has been the, or, you know, the epicenter of disagreement. And I, I think that reflects a larger disagreement in, on Capitol Hill, in Washington and in society about whether climate change, how significant an issue is and what our response should be. And that unfortunately has happened at FERC as well. Well, I think it was very poignant what you said that uh, if this becomes partisan, uh, then with every administration, one ruling could be flipped back the other way. And there's no certainty in the market, which doesn't help anybody, right? And nobody wants that. Certainly not the three people who want something. If they believe it's right, they don't want it to last just until however long the FERC stays in that party's hands. Now, the, the partisan rift has appeared in FERC's consideration of it, uh, environmental review of gas pipelines and LNG exports, and maybe that's where it's been clearest. Can you tell us what's happening there? Yes. Well, um, this has been an evolving issue uh, over my, was an evolving issue over my time at FERC. And in fact, my views on it evolved as well. Um, in approximately 2016, in response to a lot more discussion of climate in our dockets and um, growing focus on the climate impacts of natural gas, uh, FERC started adding upstream but particularly downstream climate impacts first in FERC's orders and then also in environmental impact statements. So not just the direct environmental impact of the construction of a pipeline from A to B, but also the downstream indirect environmental impact of the combustion of the gas that the pipeline transports. And um, FERC started doing that pretty consistently in 2016. In 2017, the D.C. Circuit, in a case before 2016, told FERC that it had to look at the downstream greenhouse gas emissions of a power plant that was being served by a pipeline in Florida. Are those what's called the, the indirect uh, Yes, effects? the indirect, because under NEPA, you're supposed to look at direct, indirect, and um, cumulative, and downstream would be an example of indirect. There are other indirects as well. And... Uh, so the D.C. Circuit made it clear that it considered in the Sierra Club, the Sable Trail case, uh, that the downstream GHG impacts were part of the environmental review. In, I believe, April 2018, the new FERC announced that it was reversing that policy and would be um, not regularly put greenhouse gas downstream emissions in its orders or consider them in the environmental review. I strongly dissented, Commissioner Richard Glick strongly dissented, and that has been the disagreement ever since. So then in October 2019, when FERC became a four-voting member commission, it was two people on either side, and there have been sharp disagreements about how we 
sorry, I have to get used to not using the first person, how they do their environmental review. I think it'll ultimately be decided by the courts. You broke with your Democratic colleague on the commission, Richard Glick, when you approved several LNG export projects earlier this year. Yet you weren't happy with how Neil Chatterjee, who's FERC's chairman, framed those approvals. You even posted a meme on Twitter expressing your dissatisfaction. What happened? I'll never live down that meme. But um, as I said a moment ago, because of disagreement, sharp disagreement about FERC's obligations to consider indirect downstream impacts as part of the environmental review and the public interest determination. Once the commission went down to four members, we got into a position where we were stalemated. If we couldn't agree how to do the environmental review, we'd never approve another pipeline until we got another member or lost a member. And um, I, that was, I did not feel a good situation. And I tried to find a way to compromise so that pipelines that I believed were needed to serve customers in the public interest or LNG facilities that I thought were in the public interest, because just as a footnote, in LNG, the downstream greenhouse gas is in the purview of the Department of Energy, only the direct um, environmental impacts of the liquefaction and so forth. Are the operation for, of that facility. Yes, the actual, which are, they have considerable impacts as well. Uh, I've tried to find a way to bridge the divide. So... I, in a number of cases, um, several cases, I either um, disclosed and discussed the downstream greenhouse gas impacts of a pipeline in my own concurrence to find a way to be able to say it was in the public interest because I didn't think the majority order fully discussed that. Either did that myself or in some of a few of the LNG cases, I disclosed additional things in my concurrence or got new language put into the order itself on the direct GHG impacts of liquefaction. When the first such LNG case came out, the Venture Global Calcasieu Pass case, which I believe was in January 2019, um, Chairman Chatterjee tweeted an exuberant message of we have now reached an accord that will allow LNG to be approved and implying that it was a uh, an accord that would allow all the LNG orders to go forward. And um, it was met with an echoing chorus of congratulatory tweets from the DOE and other parts of the administration. I had stressed to Chairman Chatterjee that I was really going to look on a one-by-one, case-by-case basis, and this wasn't some, you know, global accord on approving all the LNG. So I was troubled by the uh, narrative that we had reached a general agreement of all LNG approvals, and that is why I... um, tweeted the Nancy Pelosi clapback, although I was interested to see that some people actually thought I was applauding it, like she liked Neil's tweets so much she applauded it. So that's one of many reasons why memes can be misunderstood on Twitter. It does seem a little out of place that you've got the leader of an impartial regulator applauding any decision. Well, it's... It's, it's supposed to be The whole use impartial. of social media, we could do a whole podcast on how Twitter has changed FERC and the government. Um, earlier in my term, when the Wellinghoff FERC voted out the 
banner demand response rule, order number 745. Presumably, the folks in the White House may have thought that was a good rule, but they never said anything. Now, there was no Twitter then. There were other methods of communication. Um, There's been much more of a commentary from DOE or others on FERC actions, and it's partly because of the social media vehicles and partly just because of the um, the way different people conduct themselves. But yes, it's definitely changed. It's and not just the press release anymore. Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> now we're tweeting and having LinkedIn postings, and it's a different world. So with an odd number of commissioners now at the FERC, there are three commissioners, two Republicans and one Democrat. Should we expect a ruling on PJM's capacity market issue? And what about the pace of pipeline approvals? Well, you you know, obviously, I'm not at FERC anymore and not competent to opine as to what the people who are still there are going to do. And also, even if I were still on FERC, I'm sure I would say we don't comment on the timing of future cases. I guess I'll make a couple of comments. On PJM, uh, the situation has been complicated this fall by some recusal issues that have come up that have been widely reported. I am quite confident that the remaining FERC commissioners and other people at the commission are well aware that people are waiting for the PJM case. Um, nobody's asleep at the switch. Um, I think people know that that's urgent. The On pipelines and LNG, what, what developed was that in approximately the last year I was on the commission, the only cases that went out were the ones where I was able to bridge the divide and agree on. And there were others that were pending that did not go out. So now that I'm not there, that's not an issue anymore. And, you know, presumably the three people who are there will act on things as they come up. It's up to the Senate and the president to fill the two vacant seats on the FERC. Again, a full FERC uh, Mm -hmm. commission is five, five commissioners. What criteria do you expect the administration to use in seeking replacements? Well, I I definitely can't comment for the administration. You know, of course, that the administration has nominated um, a nominee for the Republican seat, James Danley, who is currently the general counsel of FERC, was previously an energy lawyer in private practice. And I believe they haven't given him, the Senate hasn't scheduled a hearing day yet, but one nominee is over the transom. Um, Unfortunately, uh, there has not been a Democratic nominee paired. It's unclear whether there will be. And normally they're paired, right? That has frequently happened in the past in cases where there is both an uh, open seat of both parties. There's been times there was no pairing because there was not an open seat of both parties. But where there's an open seat of both parties, we've frequently seen a pairing. And it's unclear whether we will. I mean, from my perspective, first of all, a full commission is better because Five minds are better than four, four better than three, et cetera. And from my personal perspective, uh, you know, nobody likes to be replaced by an empty chair. You like to think you were needed. (laughs) Uh, I think the best commissions are the most diverse. Gender diversity would be nice to see. Obviously, other kinds of racial diversity, but also diversity of background. Um, When I first got to the commission, we had a state, couple state regulators. I had a um, operating background. We had a consumer advocate. You had different, uh, someone had a Hill background. People bring different perspectives to the same issues. I think that would be the strongest commission. 
let's go back to an issue we talked about very early on related to uh, climate and, and, and that whole issue. There's a growing interest in carbon pricing for electricity markets. How do you think FERC should treat carbon pricing in the markets generally? Well, I'm on record saying that I believe, I know there's disputes about this, but I believe that if a, um, a market operator, an RTO, such as the New York ISO, which has been discussing carbon pricing, came in with a carbon pricing proposal, as long as there was documentation in the record that they had done the work to show it was just and reasonable, FERC would have the authority to act on that. I have also said I think it would be pushing FERC's jurisdiction for FERC to spontaneously say, uh, dear electric industry, please price carbon. Yours truly, FERC. I think that would be difficult. I, I actually read recently that's now a consensus view, but it has never been tested. <laughs> uh, I believe FERC could approve carbon pricing, but it would be difficult for FERC to drive it. Just a couple things to mention. There already is carbon pricing in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative and CARB in California, and those work very well with the market and have not caused any difficulties at FERC. And finally, the best possible solution would be a national structure. Going further with this theme, what are some of the big issues or other big issues that you see FERC grappling with in the future? Well, certainly the transformation of resources, technology, and the climate challenge will continue to drive market adaptations, operating adaptations, infrastructure needs, and um, I don't know if we're even at the end of the beginning at FERC. That's going to be a story for a while. The other thing I would mention we haven't talked about at all is uh, FERC's authority over the rules for the security of the bulk electric system. Um, certainly over the past decade, we've seen growing concerns about cybersecurity and even physical security, both from nation states and individual actors. And I think NERC and FERC have put in place a strong structure of rules for cybersecurity, but the threats are changing very rapidly. For example, cloud computing and how, the, how that should be treated under the um, cyber rules for the grid. Cloud computing opens up the grid to, to well, cyber attacks I, the, and cyber Well, at risks, the right? reliability tech conference that FERC had in June, there was an uh, entire panel on, as the market operators and electric companies store more information in the cloud, um, the, the first generation of cybersecurity was all about firewalls and protections and islanding yourself and keeping yourself separate with lots of barriers. Well, if you're using the internet and the cloud, that's a different architecture and you need different ways to be secure and rules about what can go to the cloud and what cannot. And I think the cloud is an example of the ways in which the threats are changing. I think we'll see FERC doing more on that. At the beginning of this last question, you said something I just didn't want to let it slip. And you said, I don't know if we're at the beginning or the end of the FERC. Can you tell me what that means? Well, I meant on this issue of um, the change in the resources in response to the climate challenge um, and all the things that FERC has to do. I would say FERC's already done a lot. You know, the new t new pricing for demand response and storage, new interconnection rules for wind and solar. That w FERC has taken a lot of action in response to new resources and technologies. But are we, have we reached an inflection point or is, it, is the pace of change still increasing? I'd say you could make a pretty good argument. The pace of change is still increasing and we're not even... So maybe we're at the beginning? We're at the beginning, at the end of the beginning, or the beginning of the end. Uh, no. 
<laughs> Let me ask you one final question. Uh, you left the FERC on August 31st and joined the board of ISO New England. For those not familiar with the ISO, tell us about it and your new role. Okay. Well, we've been talking about PJM, which is the um, regional transmission operator for the Mid-Atlantic and some of the Midwest. Um, ISO, the Independent System Operator of New England, ISO New England, is the regional transmission organization for New England. It um, administers the wholesale electric markets, oversees the planning and operation of the transmission grid, and runs the grid, runs the data, the minute-by-minute energy market, and runs the grid across New England. Um, so, like other market operators, at the forefront of a lot of the challenges and opportunities that are going on right now, with all the changes in resources and technologies and expectations. And uh, I'm trying to build a portfolio of things that I'm doing in the future, and my organizing concept is that I want to apply my experience to help w- build the energy system of the future. So I thought an RTO was uh, in the center of the action. And I'm on the board of directors. I'm not in management. I'm in the governance board. Cheryl, thanks for talking. Well, thank you very much, Andy. And congratulations on the Carnot Prize. Thank you. Today's guest has been Cheryl LaFleur, recipient of the Carnot Prize for Distinguished Contributions to Energy Policy from the Climate Center for Energy Policy, which produces this podcast. Find out more about the Climate Center, our events, and research by visiting our website, climateenergy.upenn.edu, and by subscribing to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. Thank you.